everyone, and welcome to Pros and Cons, a River Do's and River Don'ts joint. I, smooth as ever, am Quinn. And I'm Rob. I'm doing a kind of a morning radio kind of thing today to contrast the smoothness that Quinn's bring to the table. Yeah. Sitting here in the quiet storm. Which contrasts quite strongly with the content that we read today. My god. A veritable storm. And a loud one at that. Yeah. Um, this is... I'm excited about today's episode, Quinn, because it seems dangerous to make this declaration, but I think that these three chapters contain the weirdest shit that we've hit in either of these books so far. Mm-hmm. It is truly truly wild shit yeah things get real weird we're going into uncharted water here we're not just putting world documents into chapters we are adding unexpected new point of view characters <clears throat> that are handled in very weird ways oh um both of the new pov characters this time we're having like mm, both some real weird new stuff and some like incredible leveled up versions of some of like you know, the the classic Ostao foo in terms of, like, wasting time. It's it's a lot. I, I don't think that we can really do it justice. We really do have to go step by step and be crime scene blood spatter analysts about it, I think, to really, to paint a picture for you. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I think we should probably do that. I think we should, I think we should get out into the weeds. Yeah. Chapter 3, Reggie. We alluded to this last time. We start Chapter 3 from Reggie's point of view. He's got a kind of unremarkable font. It's not really that evocative. It doesn't look like sports jersey letters, because that would have been too hard, I guess. Yeah. A little bit of a disappointment. So, you will need to correct me, Quinn, if I miss something here, or you have a different interpretation, because this was hard to figure out. <laughs> Reggie seems to start the chapter out essentially directly begging forbearance from the audience, kind of admitting that his latest move was a dick move. Uh, but, but he's a point of view character now, so let's just bear with him a bit, please. And he lays out his long-standing competitive rivalry with Archie and some issues with his parents and stuff by way of kind of almost having his day in court for the reader. It's like he fucking knows that people are reading his section now. Well, but it's also very much like this. His whole time in this section is like his preamble, his opening argument. I don't feel like he ever actually gets around to the point. Like, he, he, he lays out some facts. The structure is fascinating. He starts out by sort of admitting some fault and saying, oh, I'm sorry. Then he goes on a long tangent about how much of a dickhead his dad is. You know I love Archie, but my dad was a dick. Yeah. And after that, he apologizes in a semi-way a second time for his comments to Archie, uh, which is a good, a strong Ostow move, certainly, to have the character apologize directly. First of all, having the character more or less directly addressing the audience rather than, like, events happening in the story. Let me just explain my motivations, please. Like, that's a good Ostow thing in the first place to fill up time, but to have him do it a second time after a brief aside <laughs> is pretty brazen. <laughs> oh, she's off the fucking chain on this one, Rob. Uh... 
And, like, I don't know if we want to get into and, like, actually talk about some of the shit that he's actually, like, saying the way he's going about expressing himself. Well, let's let's get through the section and then, like, we'll pick out some things that you think are really worth. Okay, let's do that. Examining. Uh, so after he apologizes a second time to the audience, he sort of diverts, like, ah, whatever, whatever the fuck. What's really going on is I'm not really going to, like, be after Veronica. I'm after Josie McCoy. She's playing hard to get, <laughs> but she definitely wants me. And I am going to say both that she is acting hard to get or reticent or whatever, and that she definitely actually wants me just a bazillion times. Just oh. over and over and over again until there are enough pages gone. And I want to draw attention here to the fact that he describes... Veronica Lodge as Riverdale's answer to a socialite, but for Reggie Mantle, only a true celebrity will do. A celebrity like Josie McCoy. And I don't know that I follow that. Is it because she's in a band? Because I don't feel like the Pussycats have the brand recognition or the name recognition that the Lodges do. I think you're right. Like, is Paris Hilton not a celebrity? Better example is probably Kim Kardashian, right? Like, she's more famous than almost anyone who does anything real. Right. This is this is a fundamental misunderstanding of celebrity culture on uh, Reggie, if not Nicole Ostow's part. Uh, but it would seem to be implied that Josie's artistic abilities put her in a higher class of famous person, I guess. Okay, and like, I can, I can dig that. I guess I understand being, like, attracted to talent. I love that Reggie is the one who is about the arts and aesthetic excellence over pure celebrity. Like, Reggie's the one who's not into things in a shallow way. That's a very weird thing to say. Yeah, it sure is. But yeah, he's definitely, like, retreading ground so much, just saying, I like her, she's hot for me. I promise you, she's super hot for me. It's... It is four pages, Quinn, of I was mean to Archie, but my dad's mean. I was mean to Archie. Sorry about that. Josie is great, and I want her, and I'm sure she actually wants me secretly. Just four pages of that. Do you think that the intent of this section is to make us hate Reggie? I don't know, but the effect <laughs> of... Both this passage and everything we've seen of Reggie basically in the TV show so far. Not perhaps hate, but but has been to render us frustrated with Reggie at the very least. Right. I just, there's obviously here some tension building with Reggie being the host of the party, putting him in a position of relative power, lusting after the responsibility, Josie. Quinn. Don't forget the responsibility. Oh, and the responsibility. But his attraction to Josie then comes into conflict with what might be going on with her and Sweet Pea. Who could say? So I could see Ooh. it planting some, you know, seeds for tension there, but the overall arc of this section, I don't understand why it exists if it's not to make me hate Reggie Mantle. I mean, yeah, like, because narratively, what we have here is there is a possibility that there will be some kind of conflict between two incredibly tangential characters. I hope you like it when C-list characters duke it out. Yeah. And it's not even C-list characters duking it out. It's the promise that maybe they might. <laughs> Over one of the characters who is leaving the show. It's so good. Like, this is such a waste of time. It's very interesting. 
Yeah, but it, that we went in and we broke the format too. We we made a new point of view character for no reason. And this is going to become a theme. Like, here's just oh, a couple yes. pages of perspective, sort of like that weird injection of Dilton Doily's diary. Yes, it is the Pokemon evolution of that. I think. But like Reggie, I don't. We didn't transform Reggie into a character much more nuanced and interesting than the one we got in the show, though. No. Like, we kind of accidentally set the bar pretty high with Dilton Doily's journal, which is, like, the best thing in the book. Oh, and don't get, like, thinking about that, thinking on something that we're gonna get into when we get to chapter five. I have some hopes about it. I have... (laughs) I have some hopes as well, Rob. Uh, We'll have to see how they line up. Yeah. So, there's also this way that Reggie is construing himself and construing his arguments that it's just, like, laden with these obvious contradictions. Oh, yeah, you know that, that I'm right. Don't worry about it. Like, it, it may seem like, but no, it's, I'm, I'm cool. And, like, I don't know if, it seems like he's aware of that contradiction as well. Like, he, he remarks upon it. I, but those contradiction, like, he, he recognizes no it and then just moves on as though, like, the contradiction doesn't matter. It's not creating tension or depth or nuance. He just says shit like, I know I have a rep for being cocky, a little too aggro, but as captain of the Bulldogs, I just think of that as leadership. Like, you obviously recognize you're an asshole. You can tell yeah, that. Yeah, well, but... Just sort of having the contradiction on full display and then just moving on, Quinn, it's beautiful. It's like a well, Fibonacci spiral because this is this is how Osto handles the story. Reggie is handling his his own emotions and character traits like Osto handles the story. It's it's like poetry. It rhymes. It rhymes. But there's this thing <laughs> that she does actually right before that where he's like Oh, Archie's so stupid and perfect with his dad who loves him and his super good family. My dad's a car dealer and he's never around, so that sucks. And then there's literally an entire paragraph in parentheticals where he's like, well, and I guess with everything that happened with his mom, like, things weren't so picture perfect. I guess his life kind of sucked too. But I'm going to continue projecting this image of Archie as having had this, like, picture perfect sitcom life. And attack him for that. Reggie's chapter is 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 a Trumpian monologue. It almost it is, yeah. Like it's just like here are things that don't work and don't make sense together, presented like there's no problem, and I'm just moving on. It's a lot to take in. Yep. And then it gets weirder. So buckle your safety belts because now we're switching to Betty's perspective. Fuck. And we do have a nice like handwritten, like kind of penciled or ballpoint font for her like she is writing in a diary and not only is that for the the name betty like her chapter section is in a handwriting style font for it is in fact a diary somehow the diary framing device has gotten way way worse from the the day before oh we'll get to that we'll get to that because like what the fuck is she writing in her diary about this stuff for we'll get to that yes because it's like yeah it's a diary whatever and like everyone else you just get the stream of consciousness and like it makes more sense as a stream of consciousness it absolutely does let's talk about like the literary merit of diaries framing devices in a minute let's yeah but but let's something just in terms of the the use 
whether it's merited or not, the use of the framing device and the use of, like, squeezing these extra bits of perspective from minor characters in has a side effect that is important to point out, I think. Okay. Which is that doing these headings and the breaks between them squeezes a tiny more bit of blood out of the white space stone. We get a few extra lines of space in the book that don't contain words. Because you get two breaks, uh, like that wave separator, two breaks, yep, and then 16-point font, probably. Yep, large heading. Then a return, and then Dear Diary, a return. You just blast out, like, ten lines. Yeah, you're writing something that's not full chapter length, not worthy of a whole chapter, but it gets a whole chapter's worth of page breaks. And Rob, I'm going to tell you, when I was scanning through this to figure out how long it is, I think it gets worse in the back end of this. I'm so excited. we're like 20% into this book already, right? And we've read up to chapter five. There's yes. like 32 chapters. So at some point, the pace is going to pick up. <sighs> I'm excited about that. So, as we said, Betty's sections are in a faux handwriting font, and my god, she repeats both the girl-next-door descriptor for herself and the cartoon villain descriptor for Hiram Lodge on the first page. She sure does. And, like, she points at the girl-next-door thing with, like, reproach. She's like, ugh. But, But, like, also, that doesn't really track with her characterization. No, I have legitimately lost track of how many times we have described her as a girl next door or some variation thereof in this book and which characters even said it. And that's a that's a fun thing. I'm noticing a lot of bleed here in character voice. Oh, yeah. It's a loosey goosey. And like cartoon villain, like we commented on how a ridiculous thing that was for an actual character who lives inside of this story to say previously and now we have a different character using the same phrase it's <laughs> right away just the first thing betty does is repeat that content right. and then she immediately describes archie as being the most pure-hearted guy she's ever known yep which again continues this this theme of having only read the wikipedia summaries for season two right it's like oh no that's you're talking about classic comics archie kind of Based on what these we learned weirdos from are out Kat. here saying that Toilet Gun was a hoax. Right, yeah. Toilet Gun Truthers? Jesus Christ. I feel like Toilet Gun Truthers was on nobody's bingo card, Quinn. No. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I, I don't even know how to like, how to do what happens after this. I'm just gonna hold my nose and jump in. Okay. We casually drop the name Edgar. Ever never. Really? In relation to the farm, that farm that's almost certainly a cult, we drop a weird-ass sounding supervillain name, uh, just no big deal, and like, that's... This is a character that I checked without spoiling myself, just looking at season two stuff. I am 100% sure that this character has not shown up in the show at all at this point. Yeah. He is not a thing in Riverdale. We are being introduced to him in a Macbethian introduction in Betty's diary. Right. Because we've heard about the farm. 
the farm has been so, a thing. Just very little about the farm at this point, though. And it's like, obviously, it's kind of a cult. You remember those fucking halcyon days where we thought that they literally just wrote Polly off the show and forgot about the farm because they went, like, nine million episodes without addressing it? Oh, God. And then we got back to, like, the original 13 episodes because obviously the middle of season two was filler and, like, all of a sudden the farm was important again after, like, forever. I really did like the episode where Archie and Jughead had to go get their driver's licenses, though. <laughs> Oh, you mean bad man and post boy? <laughs> so, uh, and like, she's just dropping a bunch of stuff here about Edgar ever never. Yeah. That like, like, for example, her mother is apparently obsessed with him and is reinventing herself to fit with his new age charlatanry. Right. Which, let me just say, sounds a lot like something that would not be put in this book were it not also true in the TV show, right? Like, Ostow right. is just spoiling season three here. I am getting that sense. And this came out in 2019, I think. Yes, the book came out, yeah. And so I think it's retroactively pulling threads from season three. So we're getting some weird teasers for shit. Yeah, it's so fucking crazy. This book was published after the third season aired, so at least part of it was written... After at least some parts of season three were aired. And Ostow is not even trying to make this a thing that makes sense in chronological order. She's writing that Betty already knows this guy who hasn't shown up in the show yet. So basically the only conclusion I can come to here is that anything that was on fan wikis at the time of her writing the Uh book is fair game for the book. And that is unbelievable. We're on some Kurt oh, Vonnegut-ass shit here now. The levels. The levels to this. Like, especially because you, you are showing up, you're reading it. At this rate, the third book is not The Maple Murders. The third book, right. the third book is Riverdale. Timequake. This thing where, like, from a metatextual perspective, they're expecting you to have watched the third season by the time you're reading this. But because we are actually timeline purists and not release order purists we're going into this we don't know anything about edgar ever never but clearly clearly she expects us to have this familiarity because she's being so like surface level with what his deal is because we're just supposed to kind of know oh yeah yeah no it's unbelievable uh this and some obvious stuff later which we've already hinted at is there's no way that Nicole Ostow is allowed to do this genuine violence to the characters of the show. Like, this has to be crazy shit that happens in season three that she's just dragging backwards in time. <sighs> it's it's very similar to how Betty knew who Veronica Lodge was and all about her and stuff before they actually right. met each other in the show from the last book. But this is like... There are multiple points of contact with this, like, tachyon madness, and it's 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 so much more severe. Like, this is like an account of Riverdale written by Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> it is. It truly is. I, that's, not to, not to tip my hand, this is one of my favorite things that we've encountered in the book so far, is this just, like, oh, casual the, the time relationship stuff in this time. book is, I love it. And you know all of it is fucking accidental, too. Mm-hmm. Like, that's part of what makes it so beautiful. It's like a sunset. It you know, truly. pollution made those colors, but it's so beautiful. <laughs> but 
uh, back to back to the narrative. This is and remember, this is in a diary. This is something that someone thought about afterwards and wrote down by hand. Uh, Alice, in the act of disapproving of the upcoming party at Reggie's, goes fucking directly off the deep end. Betty assures her that it's just Riverdale High kids at the party. Don't worry about serpent stuff. And Alice says, just Riverdale High kids. Maybe Riverdale High kids like Jason Blossom who tore your sister's heart out? Oh, you mean like Archie Andrews the murder boy? Pump the fucking brakes. She just brought up her daughter's murdered fiance out of nowhere. And apparently right. yeah, blamed no. him for his own murder two seasons after it happened. Alice Cooper has had two goddamn seasons to process what happened. And somehow she's bringing up this murdered child as like, a ooh, yeah, the Riverdale kids can be bad too, because he made Polly sad. Meanwhile, we are told... <laughs> a paragraph ago that this is a phase of Alice's life where she's obsessed with the farm which right. means that she's very in line with Polly so she but she still completely disapproves of Polly's like and romance i guess it is so like it is just all there's over the place there's been a lot of character work that has gone into Alice Cooper it's been inconsistent at times like every character in Riverdale but i thought that for the most part she had sort of gotten over the hump of being, like, the hyper-controlling mom. We we have some, uh, like, season reset problems, some Samus Aranning of her uh, character development here and there, but it does seem like each coat right. of paint at least partially stays on. So this is fucking wild, what happens here. And it makes absolutely no sense. And do you know how Betty responds to this? Oh, she goes off. She just fucking goes to town. Betty literally screams a quick plot summary of the first two seasons of the TV show at her mom. It's fucking exquisite. Something I love here is you can tell that McCole was really having fun with the format in terms of, oh, so this is a diary, which means not only do I have access to Betty's thoughts, but I have access to what she's written down, which means she's underlining things for emphasis. Oh, I have an underline count at the end. Don't don't you oh, worry God. about okay. that. Who do you think I am? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she just basically bullet points the first two seasons in an accusatory, shouty manner. This is made in Butler dialogue to the nth degree. It is, it is two characters very mad and shouty at each other about stuff they have already known for months and is not presently relevant to anything. The garbageness of this passage is fucking breathtaking. Like, they are angry about the plot of the show that they were characters in and are yelling at each other about it. And she is writing it down in her diary yeah, afterwards. Just like real life. We then descend further into this fever dream. By learning that Betty is now forging prescriptions and lying about seeing a psychiatrist. Context. Alice doesn't want her defending Archie uh, in this upcoming rigmarole due to the trouble that it could get her in. She also manages to insert a line about how unacceptable it was that Archie never asked Betty out. What the fuck is happening? I, I am in awe of that uh so this is just another like just wild tangent like this this is not a conversation it's not about it's just it's just things that happened in the show being yelled at each other 
they sort of blunt force shout their current character motivations at each other for a bit. Then Betty leaves for the party after Alice just sort of changes her mind a couple of times while talking. Yep. It is fucking surreal. I don't know if I've ever read anything exactly like this before. It, it's, it reads like an outline of the emotional beats of a heated argument, but just with quotation marks instead of bullet points. They don't actually make it to these emotional beats and changes and swings. They just immediately keep having different feelings and different opinions in no sequence, just in this like fucking game of boggle. And and they just say it out loud. It is one of the wildest things I've ever I've seen. I've never read anything like this, but I have seen the room. <laughs> The test came back. I definitely have breast cancer. Exactly. <laughs> Leaves. It's exactly that shit. <laughs> but to the prescription thing. Wait a minute. So we've gone from Vonnegetian to Wissonian? Yeah. <sighs> I love this. <laughs> Regarding the prescription, though, she explicitly calls out Adderall. And if she is forging Adderall prescriptions, she would be caught almost immediately um (laughs) so there's this thing where because adderall is a controlled substance it's a schedule two substance when a doctor writes a prescription for it they need to make a triplicate prescription so there's there's three copies that get made there's one for the pharmacy there is one for the doctor and there's one for the fucking dea and when you go get that prescription filled they need to cross-reference them and if there's discrepancies between any of the three they flag it yep so if she's getting access to Adderall, there's a huge ethical failure on the part of all of the people doing the prescribing of drugs here in Riverdale. Or the yeah. making of drugs, well, I mean, not prescribing. Yeah, it just, it just would never, it would just never happen. But that's inconvenient, so let's ignore it. And yes, as you alluded to, Quinn, the fucking underlining. There are 22 instances of a word or phrase being underlined, some in dialogue, some not, over the course of six pages. It's like reading old comics, <laughs> where for the purpose of like maintaining aesthetic balance, I guess, they would bold and underline rand- uh, seemingly random phrases to like maintain the aesthetic harmony of a page. It is a lot of underlining. That is all I can say for sure. This is like this is like brand names and celebrity and film references for Veronica in the first book levels in terms of like how many per page there Fucking are. Twenty two. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. <sighs> Keep it together. Chapter four, Jughead. Okay, hold on. But before we get there, they do end with Alice motioning toward some even more horribler truth. At the guts of Riverdale. Oh, you're right. How did I miss that? Horrible things. You're not ready, young one, basically. Yeah, horrible things have happened in this town, Betty. She said, her voice tight. More than you'll ever know. And then Betty's like... I mean, she's she's talking about the Lovecraft stuff, probably. right? Because we've got, we've got serial killers, like, coming out of every orifice. We've got criminal conspiracies taking over the town. That's all, like, established. We've got Native Massacre founding the town and a fratricide and some incest. And yet worse things to come. Uh, Shoggoth box. It's, it's gonna it's open. Be. Chapter four, Jughead. And you know this is gonna be good. Because it starts out with, and I quote, I'm weird. 
I'm a weirdo. <laughs> In Italian. <laughs> I... <laughs> those, those are the first fucking words. I had to stop for a minute when that happened. I did too. What a gift. I'm weird. I'm a weirdo. <laughs> oh, she was paid to write Classic this Classic Jughead. Oh my god. Oh. He then refers to himself as Riverdale's own J.D. Salinger. And it's like, wait, hold on. Do you mean J.D. Salinger or Holden Caulfield? Because he could mean either. I don't even know anymore. He could mean either. (laughs) And I feel like Holden Caulfield is slightly more appropriate in this context. Jughead hasn't written a fucking book. Right. (laughs) He talks a big game. Yeah, he does. Oh, God. Now, okay, my next point is hugely pedantic. I need to just get that out Mm. there. But what is this show if not hugely pedantic? Jughead gets one of the serpent laws wrong, folks. He says, and I quote, A snake never sheds its skin. This is not only a misquotation of the law, a serpent never sheds its skin. It is also factually wrong. I have seen snakes shed their skin with my own two eyes, Jughead. Uh-huh. Just fucking it up. Which kind of put me in mind of, like, how weird it is that, they're, like, one of their laws is, like, a serpent never sheds its skin. So one of, the, one of our laws in our animal theme gang is how we are not like the animal. If real snakes were strong, they wouldn't do it. It's only because they're weak. Mm. The platonic ideal of a snake okay. does not shed its skin. I see. I see. It's like how Vince McMahon hates when people sneeze because that's them being unable to control their body. Right. Also, I get he it. rolls into a fucking doozy of a line here. They say blood is thicker than water, sure, but sometimes, but sometimes found family's the thickest of all. Yeah, where did you get you some of that thick found family? <laughs> what the fuck? <sighs> uh. <sighs> I just mm, like. There's basically just a cringe parade in the next passage here, basically up until he runs into Ethel. Oh my god, yeah, the whole thing is... Like, like I didn't even, I couldn't even take notes on it, there, it's just everything. Like, wanna just pick out some choice bits of cringe as we go through Jughead's inner monologue as he rolls up on the party? Sure. Like, he he talks about the party, he's dropping a bunch of references... I killed the engine and watched from a distance while she said her hellos. Noticing the way her shoulders did that little hunch thing that happens when she's feeling stressed but trying not to show it. And meanwhile, the whole point of coming in the first place was to have fun and relax. What does that sentence mean? I don't know. Because the point was never to have fun and relax for Jughead. It was to support... Archie's ability to have fun and Which relax. Which was also... He hates parties. That's one of his main fucking character traits, and he talked about One of about the worst episodes of season one was very much centered around Jughead this. don't like parties, the episode. And then, there's this thing. Like, and meanwhile, comma. Yeah. What does that mean? What do you mean, meanwhile, the whole point of coming? That means at the same time. Like, happening concurrently occurring concurrently the whole point i guess it's like of coming her shoulder hunch thing reminded him of how the point was to have fun or something 
to that effect. I don't know. It's just, it's a very weird way of getting that right. across, if that's and the case. They're making references to, um, like, 80s movies. A bunch of 80s movies references. Oh, um, yes. Like a bunch of John Hughes movies type stuff. Because Reggie is very much like the jock from every 80s high school movie. And Jughead's like, just as long as I could get through this night without adopting a wise old mentor, learning the ancient warrior art of karate, and gliding through a sweeping training montage set to a new wave medley, I'd be okay. Woof! Wow, that is... That is... Good and torture. So, also, I think just for my own personal entertainment and edification for the rest of this read-through, anytime the word jock comes up, I am going to make it uh, the jocker. Like the like the Joker. Okay. Reggie Mantle, the personification of the Joker from every generic 80s high school dramedy. He's the Joker, baby. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's just every piece of this is horrible. Yeah, we talk about there's some awkwardness between... Betty and Kevin Keller and like because his dad was a terrible sheriff and like oh the sins of the father and all that just so that I can say the sins of the father because right, Betty's above that Betty's above that like that's not actually happening but I thought I'd mention it anyway <laughs> uh, oh Reggie's garage see. door was propped open it was a total mob scene in there and I like to imagine that what Jughead meant is there's a bunch of Italian dudes with, oh yeah with trilbies Papa Putin yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, I instantly thought of that, too. Like, if anyone here has seen the excellent sketch comedy show, I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson, there's an entire <laughs> sketch about a guy who tried to make a mob movie and who was trying to get rid of all of, like, the memorabilia that he had acquired for this failed mob movie, and I just get big that guy vibes from from that image. But yeah, it is a lot of weird shit for... One, two, three, four pages before Jughead runs into Ethel Muggs and, like, the first, like, thing arguably happens in the chapter. I mean, I'm sorry. This, before we get there, there's this paragraph that happens really, really close to when he runs into Ethel here, where he says, I threaded through the bodies. Everyone was sticky and slick in the tight, humid space. Whoa, that is, uh... That is visceral. That is some carnal language there. And then there's this great follow-up that says, I didn't recognize anyone. No, wait. There were those two river vixens, the ones anointed as Cheryl Blossom's minions when she wasn't off making like Jack Kerouac with Tony Topaz. I don't know who the fuck she's talking about. You mean like, who are these two river yeah. vixens? Like, who are these characters? No, like, there are no river vixens who have like special significance that we like know and have followed this is just made up as far as i can tell it's made up and then ethel enter ethel yeah ethel mugs um she's for some reason looking for someone named ben and dilton doily i had to look up who ben was i don't know who ben is turns out he's a guy who used to work at the concession stand at the twilight before it closed and he was abused by miss grundy he was one of her oh, victims. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, that's, that's basically, he's a super minor character. And, like, for some reason, Ethel Muggs is looking for Dilton Doily and this guy. And this has to be more season three plot. It's gotta be. Speaking of which, I think that's gonna smack us in the face. Being pre-spoiled or thrown forward to. Because, like, why the fuck would this be in the book? What is any of that? Oh, 
I, a D-list character, am looking for another D-list character and like a F triple minus list character. Right. Have you seen them? No. Okay, cool. Bye. Yes, I, like, ostensibly the archetypal good girl character, am looking for a rando, essentially, and the one boy whose primary defining character trait is that he's going to prison. <laughs> In the... HBO Watchmen sequel, he'd be wearing a Rorschach mask. Let's be real mm-hmm. here. And yeah, like, it's just, it, clearly this has to only have significance in light of aired episodes of season three, because it's just nothing. <laughs> uh, anyway, then Jughead walks in on some pretty post-makey-outy-looking stuff going on between Josie and Sweet Pea, and they impress upon him a need for silence. And that's the end of the chapter. So, like, if you want to, like, keep track... This chapter is Jughead mentally sucking his own dick about how outsider and weird he is uh, and making really clumsy, really tortured, generic movie references. Not even references to, like, specific movies. References to kinds of movies. Then Ethel Muggs looking for two characters that we don't know any reason why she would be looking for with no further information. And then... Yeah, like maybe maybe Sweet Pea and Josie have some sort of romantic thing going on. You forgot that's an incredibly important thing, and that's that somebody vomits in a ficus. Oh, yes. I did not note the super significance of somebody vomiting in a potted plant until the next chapter, but you're right. This is a, this is a bit of stylistic flourish that fucking sends me into space. But we'll get to it when we when, we'll it, get when it hits, when the other shoe when the other shoe drops, when the other puked plant right. drops. And we do get confirmation from Josie that that gig she was talking about is tomorrow night, which wasn't really clear to Good. me in the first chapter. I thought no, that no, it, was, it was the timeline. Was I thought little... that it was compressed, like they're gonna go hit the party for like an hour and then go play their show. Lest we forget, the first Riverdale novel took place over the course of twenty four fucking hours. Jesus Christ! All right. <laughs> but chapter five is here oh is it ever i i'm so excited about this this is this is so full of promise i'm so scared that it'll all be squandered but for now chapter five ethel ethel mugs starts in on some insane cult ranting about someone named the gargoyle king <laughs> And a game that they play together. She implies that, like, well, she says that the Gargoyle King challenges his followers and they must rise to the occasion and prove their worth to him. And <laughs> She implies along the way that Ben and Dilton are involved in some way, so that's why she was looking for them, and that she has become romantically desirous of both of them. What the fuck is going on? This, again, must, 100% must be season three plot that's being used here because you can't just do this. You can't, if you can't just say like, oh, this minor character is in a weird cult and like wants to bone down on these random other characters. The fucking, what the shit? The fucking balls on Nicole Ostow, if that is true. <laughs> Like, if, if she just made this shit up whole cloth... There's no way that's there's... true, but I would fucking love it if it was. It is not the case. This has to be season three. But, like, if it weren't, this would be the most magical thing we've ever and seen so they're far. They're playing the game in Dilton's bunker. <laughs> so, 
That means we get to see Dalton's bunker in Where season three. Obviously, Glenn. we get to go there. Obviously, all the evidence of his crimes are in there. And I'm like, <gasps> I'm so excited to see it. I'm gonna call right now that this is this is a game of Dungeons and Dragons that they're talking about. I am getting powerful Dark Dungeons vibes it's here. Gonna be so bad. It's gonna be so bad. I am absurdly excited. If season three is a chick tract, if season three does a Dungeons and Dragons is evil and occult plotline, I mean, this will have all been worth it. That's like almost retroactively making up for the broken promise of the serpent D&D club. Well, right. Remember that the serpents were going to fucking play D&D and then that never just, just never happened? I'm still mad about it. What the fuck, guys? That's worse than no racing hearses. <sighs> but... We're never going to let any of those no, things go, are I we, No, I want Quinn? the Dragula. Yeah. No Dragula, no D&D, no peace so, is kind of what we're saying fucking lootly I do want to point out that you talked about Chick Track, talking about how Dungeons & Dragons is evil and occult. Um, and, like, if you go to my Twitter, you'll probably find me saying some shit that sounds a lot like that. But I'm attacking Dungeons & Dragons from the left. Yeah, you're not attacking Satan. You're attacking the game for its racism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And it's Monopoly. Satan is welcome at our gaming Yeah, table. any fucking time, bro. He's a cool dude. Just, there's better games out there. Uh, yeah, like a fucking ton of them. I just, the, I'm overwhelmed. The fucking Gargoyle King. Dude, I'm sure they're busy. It's involved in the game with a capital G. Caught in making sure the codes and tasks and trials. The game, oh yeah. No, they're just, <laughs> they're just hanging out with Triple H down there in the bunker so you guys uh you uh like to play play role-playing games in a bunker that's pretty cool uh Ugh. so yeah caught up in making sure the codes and tasks and trials laid out by the gargoyle king are being met that we're ready for oh, them. codes and tasks and trials that's oh not only is this a dark dungeons vibe the Gargoyle King's given me some of that good, like, C-list Batman villain energy, too. Oh, man. Gargoyle King x Calendar Man. Yeah. <laughs> That's the ship for the truly brave. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, Obviously, like, oh, you must find all of these hidden gargoyles in these, in these, um, uh, street graffitis, or I will, I will... Decline to pay one of my parking tickets. <laughs> Gargoyle King. All while Triple H watches. <laughs> yeah, that's where it gets real weird. And then ah, uh, this is so exciting. I can't, I can't handle the end of this passage. Too the the end here of her section. You can do the honors. I know. Eventually, I will rise to the next level. I will be made whole. And Dilton will see me as the queen we all need me to be. We all need her to be. <laughs> Holy shit. What is happening in this goddamn book, Quinn? I don't know. You know what's you know what part of the vertigo here is? Is that the actual plot of the book is people go to a party and this shit in Betty's section and Ethel's section that's just out of nowhere is so much more interesting yeah. than the actual story. I would love to know what's going on with the Gargoyle King or with 
with <laughs> Ever Never. Yeah. Please. Instead, we've got Give one us... ruined ficus. They're giving us these meager crumbs. Can you imagine if this was what started the book? I... God damn. We do come crashing back to Earth, however, with Veronica to wrap up the <sighs> chapter. Veronica arrives at the party, despite having already arrived with Archie, because we're doing this POV thing, and this allows us to describe the party for the fourth time in the book. Awesome. <laughs> There's also this weirdly satisfying and equally infuriating callback to Jughead's detail about someone puking in the potted ficus. She sees the puking happen, which locates this chapter slightly earlier in time than Jughead's previous chapter. Yeah. She also mentions the John Hughes stuff, but she name drops him. And that's okay for yeah. Veronica. That works for that works for Veronica. But like, yeah, this is this stylistic flourish of like, oh, in case you wanted to know exactly what timeline where like it's a fucking heist movie. <laughs> I cannot wait to see the YouTube cut of all of the continuous that shows it all happening at yeah. once. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's just that flourish is for a story with a lot more going on in it than this. But she just does it anyway. This is just some rando puking. It's <laughs> it the it second most exciting thing that happens at this party. Yep. You mean besides what Ethel is thinking about? Well. Are we technically counting that as a thing happening at a party? I was more talking about, like, the building heat between Archie and Reggie. But if we okay, don't sure. count that, like, if we... If Which is eclipsed by what's going on in Ethel Muggs' head. If we're allowed to count what's going on in Ethel Muggs' head, it's like, that's way at the top. And then everything else is, like, so many tiers down. That it's not even fair. Curve-wrecking outlier. Yeah. So, yeah, she then overhears Betty trying to calm Archie down about the shitty stuff Reggie said, and thereby finds out that Reggie had said to Archie that he was going to keep Veronica company while Archie was in jail. The main four all run into each other and decide that the party sucks and that they should go to Pops. Uh, now Veronica catches a glimpse of Betty's prescription bottle and also notices how Betty is trying to not let anyone see the prescription bottle, so the plot thickens i guess on that but like this is the breathtaking thing you know we're like like we alluded to we're at least 20 percent into the book now and all that has truly happened is people went to a party and decided it wasn't a very good party that's the plot uh-huh we have yet to actually introduce well okay not not fair we've kind of introduced the conflict which is the conflict of the end of season two of riverdale we have not introduced any protagonistic action about the conflict except try to ignore it for a night and fail so i guess i guess that's very cambellian isn't it that's like the call to adventure and like refusing the call i i guess so we're doing a heroic legend here we don't have room to do the whole thing in these pages though <laughs> not even close <sighs> yeah and there's maybe motioning towards setting up like one or two other concurrent plot lines but I Maybe. feel like those are probably more than anything teaser for season three, unless she manages to pay off this whole Josie and Sweet Pea thing. God only knows. With how much of the rest of the book is clearly just stuff that already happened being pulled backwards in time and not being allowed to move. Fuck. I'm st I was... Rob, Rob, I was trying to find the end of section one, right? Because I want to know oh, how right. long the party, the party section, section one, is. the party. I opened to a page. I opened to page 78, Rob, and I'm sorry I... Okay, I have to spoil this for you. <laughs> okay. There's a new perspective. I'm, I'm girding my lawn. There's a new perspective character that they introduce, right? Who the fuck is it? Motherfucking Pop Tate. Oh! 
Oh, just put that directly in my veins. We're like a chapter out from Pop Tate perspective. Ah, Pop Tate POV. Oh, Riverdale. Get out of town. Get out of town. Huh. Okay, some some housekeeping before we go. Verona Counter. This is a sad, lame, weak Verona Counter. We had seven and a half pages of Veronica content with one celebrity name, three brand names, and one literary reference. I'm not even going to do the index on this because it's going to depress me. Also is sleeping on the job when it comes to Veronica at this point. Like, we are not getting adequate references. And it makes me sad. I can't. Yeah, it's sad. But... We can hold out a little bit of hope, Quinn, because there's one other bit that we have to handle before we say our goodbyes, and that is Venom Watch 2020. Hashtag Venom Watch 2020. Woo! Woo! Now you're obligated to do that every time oh, I yeah. say that. I'm sorry to say, but yeah, one of the most significant things in this book is their rival Venom, which of course has not shown up in this, but we did get confirmation that Josie's concert is the following day. So we can hope that more details will be fed to us as we approach our day of reckoning with Venom, whatever the fuck that is. And that's one of the things that's really pulling me forward. As though we need more things pulling us forward at this point, because this book is insane. Yeah. We're, it follows the pattern of season one to season two of Riverdale really well, actually, in some ways. Like, it's just, it's much more indefensible and much more full of madness. Yeah, yeah. This, I, this whole... I'm excited to see where this stuff goes because there is potentially so much going on. She's throwing a lot of spaghetti out. So much spaghetti. And like that spaghetti's all over the timeline too. It's like weird temporal spaghetti. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And what's going to happen in in the later part of the book? They're going to go into the fucking they're going to go to the lake house to try to they're going to somehow dig around. prove Archie's innocence, which they won't. Exactly. They're going to try to find evidence and they're not going to find anything. Yep. Or they're going to find something, and then Andre's going to show up and be like, I know the martial arts, and take it away from them. I would be perfectly satisfied with that, to be to be honest. Right, I'm just... I'm legitimately on pins and needles about, like, where we're going with this, because I expected a misadventure at Shadow Lake to try to prove Archie's innocence that somehow goes wrong by the end so that season three can still happen normally. Right. And it's so bizarre, because while nothing has happened in the book so far... We are also being given so much more than the premise promised. <laughs> I'm in awe of what's on offer here, frankly. And again, I feel like she's just mercilessly taking from some like Wikipedia summaries of episodes of stuff that hasn't fucking happened yet and just putting it in the story. It's amazing. It's like a like an expert uh, baker making a pastry, just folding those those flaky layers. <laughs> Like forging a katana. Just yes, for, <laughs> for forging famously the best swords ever, according to Weebs. <laughs> according to Weebs, who don't know what a Viking is. Yep. Uh, or like Rome was. But good lord. Yeah. This this hell ride brought to you by Mikkel Ostow. Folks, stick with us. We're hitting the next three chapters next time. And, and yeah, somehow Pop motherfucking Tate is a POV character. And if he doesn't have neon letters for his name, I fucking quit. We're going to see if Rob eats his words next time on Pros and Cons. Yeah! 
后悬。<笑>